Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am your host, Brian Fleming, and I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole, on this lovely Thursday afternoon. All is right with the world. I write in air quotes. How's it going, Tim? We live on the best of all possible days in the best of all possible worlds. Here, here. <laughs> um, welcome, everybody. How to... could you face things if that weren't true? That, right? that is very, that is entirely true. Uh, welcome, everyone, back to Embargoed. Uh, great to have you with us again. Uh, not to no one's surprise, after a, a one-episode hiatus from China, we are now basically only going to be talking about China on this episode. Uh, we're we're coming back with a vengeance, uh, given uh, that all that's going on these days with TikTok and WeChat. So uh, for for those of for those of you who are our China takes on our China content, have no fear. That's basically all you're going to hear on this episode. Um, before we get started, I'll dispense with the, the normal uh, preliminary comments, which is that we're not giving legal advice. We are not discussing any confidential information. These opinions are solely our own uh, and are uh, subject to change perhaps as we are discussing given sort of the, the way the winds are blowing or swirling, uh, the chaotic winds are swirling these days all around us. Um, and uh, if you like the pod, of course, please subscribe. Uh, please give us a five-star rating. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, wherever you get your content. We appreciate your continued support. We appreciate the comments. I think we definitely had some people that were happy to get No China content the last time and like the kind of grab bag, our, our all lightning round approach. But, uh, you know, we can't, uh, we, have to, we have to accept who we are as a podcast, which is if we're committed to, to dealing with and dissecting what are the most interesting and important issues going on in the world of international trade at the moment, certainly from a U.S. focused perspective. I don't think there's any denying that this one's got to be all China, so or mostly China. So um, with that, uh, any any thoughts, Tim, before I give the roadmap and we are off and running here? A few quick thoughts. The first is just when we thought we were out, they keep sucking us back in. We've got to go back to China because that's really where a lot of the trade law is happening. Um, I also do think that that uh, a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today have an election-related component. So I definitely think that there is, it is that time of year, and so the trade law seems to be often based on kind of how the election is going in a particular state or how the election is going with respect to a particular community. Yeah, I think that's been uh, sort of lurking in the background all year since we really started the podcast. And now that we are six weeks away or less than six weeks away from Election Day here in the United States, I think there's absolutely no avoiding it. I think there's uh, just about anything that happens these days is uh, tinged with, well, maybe we'll wait and see to what happens after the election, or maybe this will be reversed, uh, you know, three months from now or six months from now. So I think that is going to be uh, a meaning just about everything we're talking about here. Uh, I agree completely. So uh, the roadmap for today, uh, topic number one, which is we're calling one topic, but it's really about eight different topics is 
our latest check-in with TikTok and WeChat. And within that, we are going to cover, of course, the prohibitions that were announced last week by the Secretary of Commerce, which were then quickly uh, abandoned or withdrawn sort of over the weekend for a variety of reasons. But nevertheless, we're going to talk about those uh, first. Then we're going to check in on the state of the various of the bans on TikTok and WeChat and uh, of, of sort of significant import there is the state of the various litigations that are going on related to that on both sides. Then we're going to check, check in with what's going on with CFIUS and the state of the TikTok divestiture. I, I put that in air quotes because it's unclear whether it really is a divestiture. And uh, despite the president indicating that he's good with the deal, I think there's still significant uncertainty as whether it's going to happen and what form it's ultimately going to come in. And then finally, we're going to check in with um, something that's been sort of brewing for a long time, which is China's unreliable entity list. And this is related to the TikTok and WeChat situation. It's really more of a Huawei generated issue. I think that's where this sort of first kicked up and the idea first at least got publicly discussed in China. But just this week, regulations issued by uh, Mofcom in China laying out the parameters for this unreliable entity list. And so we're going we're gonna to hit that last as we discuss uh, the TikTok WeChat situation. So that, again, that's one topic sort of, but it's really like 100 topics all boiled into one. We're then going to move to Iran and in particular, uh, the US uh, efforts to try to reimpose UN sanctions against Iran. Uh, two years after it uh, withdrew from the JCPOA, which is not surprisingly caused quite a stir among uh, those within the UN community and elsewhere. And then also new unilateral sanctions that have been imposed by the US relating to um, arms uh, sales to Iran. And then uh, that's really it for the main portion of the show. I think that is going to be plenty for us to cover. And then in the lightning round, we're gonna hit two topics. One is, explicitly election related, which is the a couple of recent um, election interference and cyber related designations from OFAC. We're going to uh, touch upon those briefly. And then we're going to talk about the latest um, just came out yesterday and has just officially been released today, which is new restrictions uh, on Cuba relating to US travel uh, to Cuba, a few general licenses that have been uh, taken away and a brand new list with respect to Cuba that we will talk about, um, the CPA list, which they, they never fail to come up with uh, the catchy acronyms uh, in the sanctions and trade Leave it world. to OFAC. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, in, so anyway, that's the show for today. Uh, and I think uh, sort of without further delay, we'll, we'll just hop right in. So again, topic number one, uh, TikTok and WeChat. So when we left you, uh, we were all awaiting the uh, prohibitions, the scope of the prohibitions from the Secretary of Commerce, because as we discussed a couple of episodes back, the executive orders that were issued in early August targeting TikTok and WeChat for uh, you know, the so-called TikTok and WeChat bans did not define the scope of, of prohibited transactions. Uh, well, we got those, uh, the scope of those transactions last Friday, September 18th, we're uh, recording on Thursday the 24th. And um, so we're gonna get into in a moment what, what those did and probably more significantly what they did not do. Uh, and, and I think we're gonna start there. And then, as I said, we have many other aspects of this to, to look at, but in terms of what the, what the prohibitions actually did 
you know, again, and go, hearkening back to our earlier conversation where we certainly, upon a first read of the executive order, these prohibitions could have swept incredibly broadly. Um, and I think that was a great fear and uh, in sort of the global community, certainly in China, that the U.S. was going to try to really, um, really take a, a broad swipe at both uh, TikTok and ByteDance and WeChat and Tencent. What we really is sort of what we were expecting as a sort of first line, uh, you know, priority here all along, which is going after the app stores. And, and the number one thing on both sides of this is the prohibition touches the, the app stores and the ability to um, get new downloads and updates of both of these apps. And then essentially everything else is related to um, infrastructure, whether it be internet service providers or content service providers relating to the functioning of the app. And with WeChat, all of this was supposed to kick in over the weekend as soon as the day window had closed. And with uh, TikTok, it was going to be phased because there was going to be the app store prohibition was going to go in immediately. And then there was going to be the rest of it was not was going to be deferred until November because that syncs up with the CFIUS review timeline. And, and they made clear that if, if those issues are resolved, then perhaps all of this goes away with respect to TikTok and ByteDance. A couple of quick notes in terms of carve outs and what is not covered. So what is not covered are um, employees and payroll and things like that. So this was explicitly sort of carving out employees of the companies, even in the US. Also existing users of the app, agent personal or business communications, that's not part of the prohibitions. Um, and then uh, I, there's a whole category that also makes very clear that this is not meant to cover out anything outside the US. Um, you know, if we were gonna go through, uh, we're not gonna try to recite every single aspect of this because we, we would, um, that would be the whole program today, but that in a nutshell is sort of what, what it all covers. Uh, of course, they, they sort of uh, warn that this could be expanded at some future date, but essentially it's the app stores and it's the, all of the infrastructure that is designed to service, support, and make the app function. Uh, and as uh, one of the parties has said in court filings, you know, when the, set, when the rest, when all of these go into effect, it will, it will essentially bar and ban uh, the app in the United States. So this is at least, you know, that is what the US has said they would do. This is uh, now done or at least attempted to do in the first instance. So what, what were your reactions, Tim, with respect to when you first saw the scope of what we got last Friday? It was not as broad as it could have been, was my first response. Um, it was really as expected in terms of, particularly I'm talking about WeChat now, because I, I, I view TikTok as different because that hasn't gone into effect, may never go into effect. I think it's pur the purpose with the TikTok um, commerce side uh, rules or commerce side executive order was to really force action in the, in the CFIUS proceeding. And, and so, it, that worked. And so I actually, or appears to have worked. So I'm not sure those are ever really going to go to, into effect. But with WeChat, uh, I think there was a huge fear that there would be a WeChat ban that would, would it purport to ban WeChat in China. And that would have been something that would have been just uh, a huge, huge sanction, probably the biggest sanction ever issued. It was much less than that because I think there are from reading the lawsuit, it, it appears there's about 19 million WeChat users in the US. So that's still quite a big 
group of people, but it's nothing like the the billion folks in China that rely on WeChat every single day. Um, so I was, but I, but I also just I still continue to be astounded by the the lack of any criteria in the executive order for the Secretary of Commerce to decide what transactions will be banned. I mean, we guessed this from based on media leaks, but otherwise. I mean, it could have been all, it could, the, 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 the types of transactions that could have been banned range from, you know, the really mundane all the way through to banning the entire use of this, you know, hugely important platform in China. And so it, it did, did strike me and it still strikes me as a, as a real um, example of how broad uh, the, the president's delegation of authority under the under IEPA is and how broadly then the president has continued to construe it. And not I don't mean by the president, this president, I just think in terms of executive authority, it, it shows how sweeping that authority has gotten. And I think that at some point that there will be some question about whether it has any bounds and maybe this is the case for that. Right, and so I'll just offer one other quick thought that sort of along those same lines and then we can kind of move into <laughs> once, once the, I think the the term of art that we used originally to turn to to, um, to describe all of this was a huge mess, and I yes. think that it has continued to get messier and messier. And from last Friday when this was released until today, it has gotten much messier. So we're going to get into the, all the mess and what it all means in a moment. I would also add that you know, these are unlike what we see in many other contexts, whether from BIS or OFAC or other agencies that are issuing kind of rules like this or interpretations um, of, you know, delegated authority under executive orders or statutes. There's nothing here. I mean, look, we know we know how to, if, if we had to reach out to somebody at the Commerce Department to try to get some guidance on the scope of one of these provisions, and I, and I believe that that is going to be happening. Are you an internet service provider for purpose of this? Are you a content right. um, network services, you know, delivery entity for purposes of this, et cetera? Those types of questions I think are going to, are going to come up. There's really, a, there's not really, it seems any kind of regulatory apparatus in place to sort of deal with that. There's certainly nothing that contemplates any kind of licensing or exceptions or anything like that with respect to any of this, as far as I can tell. Uh, so it's, well, it's that's, that's already come up for me. So, so yeah, for me know, as I, well, which is and, why I, which is why I bring it up because it's like, what are, as a practical matter, what are companies, I'm sure p many people listening to this are thinking, well, we think maybe we're covered, maybe we're not covered. Can we continue, can we continue to do this with, um, Tencent on behalf of WeChat in the United States? We don't know. How, how do we get clarity on that? What do we do? Just very, very fundamental questions. Well, and, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen so far is that um, for international travelers, um, there are often currently requirements that the traveler get and produce the results of a COVID test. And for travelers to China, my understanding is that that's done on WeChat. And so if you're traveling back to, to China from the United States, how, how would you do that? And, and do, that, right. doesn't that seem like the, the type of thing, I mean, but for the, the, the injunction, how would you do that? But, right. but it, doesn't that seem the type of thing that, if, that, that would be licensable? Even assuming right. it's covered by the order, you know, if somebody came to me with that question in a, in a normal either Commerce Department scheme or a Treasury Department scheme, 
we would be starting to think, okay, that, that might be prohibited, but it certainly seems to be the sort of thing that they would license. I mean, a health uh, use of this app for health purposes, but I don't know how you'd license it because they've banned the, the whole thing. Because there is no licensing regime, apparently. This is just, it's, you know, it is. But what could you do too? I mean, could you right. give one person the ability to use WeChat in the United States when none of the servers can host it? I mean, uh, it would be <laughs> right. difficult to implement a licensing right. regime, although it, it does seem that example seems like exactly what you would use for that. Right. I, I agree completely. I mean, I think, as I, as I said, we, we're not going to get into it today. I'm sure it may come up in the future as we, as these lawsuits and other actions continue to play out a bit more, you know, there are some terms under here that are, you know, arguably quite ambiguous in, in what is covered, what is not covered. There is, there is really no regulatory framework for how this is really, then it's a decree about what's prohibited. Uh, and that is it. So, you know, how does that play out? Uh, are we getting, are we going to get regulations on this at some point in the future? I suppose that's possible, but, uh, you know, for the time being, this is what we're left with. So I think um, this is, so this is sort of an initial, let's just leave it there for now in terms of an initial discussion on this, because I'm certain we will come back to this at some point. And in any event, over the weekend, all of this got thrown out the window because two things happened. Uh, number one, uh, a group of WeChat users won a preliminary injunction in the Northern District of California to stay the effectiveness of the WeChat-related rules and prohibition uh, on First Amendment grounds. And then uh, because of the progress that had been made in the negotiations that CFIUS is overseeing and the an apparent deal um, met with, uh, you know, uh, approval by the White House, uh, Commerce basically extended the, withdrew its initial order uh, or the scope of the prohibitions going into effect on September 20th with respect to the TikTok side and said, we're going to give an extra week till September 27th in light of the progress that's been made. So basically over the weekend, everything came to a screeching halt by, because of the court action and because of the progress on the CFIUS front. I would add that in addition the lawsuit that we talked about previously that had been that had been filed by TikTok and ByteDance, that was originally filed in Los Angeles. That was voluntarily dismissed. There was another lawsuit that was filed, basically the same thing in DC, in federal district court in DC. That lawsuit is still ongoing. And in fact, I think there was supposed to be a conference with the judge today because yesterday there was a preliminary, pre preliminary injunction motion filed in that case for I think exactly the reasons that Tim has alluded to previously, which is this is kind of belt and suspenders in the event that something goes sideways with the CFIUS process and the, the transaction that's underlying all the concerns, uh, they have the court action potentially to fall back on to you know, forestall uh, implementation of the order with respect to TikTok. So, um, so nothing is currently in effect. So everything we just talked about, all the prohibitions, all of that at the moment, is no is not in effect and you could go well when you listen to this next week by the time you listen to this next next week that could be that could have changed on tuesday uh september 29th but um at the moment you could go on to your app store and download both apps and use them freely and and everybody who supports those apps could continue to you know do provide that support without uh being in, in violation of this these prohibitions so with respect to the lawsuits let's let's talk about that first um what are your thoughts on, so basically you have the users group who they're the only, the grounds that they showed a um, likelihood of success on for purposes of getting their preliminary injunction was first amendment. 
Uh, and I'll, I'm going to turn to Tim to talk about that because he knows a lot more than I, about that than I do. And then in the lawsuit that's going on in DC, they they raise essentially the same issues. They same issues are more or less raised in both First Amendment, Administrative Procedures Act, IEPA over overstep. But they sort of reordered them. And in the in the DC lawsuit that TikTok is bringing, IEPA, and in particular the restrictions on the president's authority with respect to personal communications and if informational materials and the ability to regulate those under IEPA, that is kind of the centerpiece and the number one leading argument that they're making in DC, which I think is important and we need to talk about. But let's yeah. first talk about the WeChat suit and First Amendment. What did you take from that? Yeah, and I do want to get to the Berman Amendment stuff because that's also in the WeChat suit, but the judge yeah. really didn't reach the issue. No. She, she found she didn't find a likelihood of success on that issue but I, I at least the way i read it she kind of ducked she's like I, i've decided the first amendment definitely issue. not foreclosed but just yeah. not enough on the record and we could revisit that yeah that's what i took it but to mean. but i mean i and i know just enough about the first amendment to be quite dangerous on this <laughs> and, and to get it wildly wrong but as i understand it the the theory is that the that because wechat is used even by the community the, the chinese american community in the united states as a as kind of a communications device, a device for for organizing, a device to to deal with various um, political matters, that there is there is quite a bit of protected speech that is being uh, essentially prohibited, although it's not directly prohibited by the president's or by the commerce uh, department's order with respect to these transactions, and that in order to do that. Uh, the the government has to show that it, their their order is narrowly tailored to a compelling government interest, and here, I mean, this thing wasn't narrowly tailored at all in, in, in any sense. I mean, it's more narrowly tailored, I guess, than it could have been. It, but it but there were no standards that went into it to begin with, and it sweeps really broadly. But I think that the other thing that was really in dispute here, and and we we talked about it a little bit in in previous podcasts from the side of, you know, you have the president saying a lot of things that really undermine the notion that any of the national security ju justifications are legitimate. So we talked about that on an earlier podcast, and that was part of the lawsuit. But then on the uh, on the other part of the, is there a compelling government interest here that is, you know, this is narrowly tailored to, the court really found that the government hadn't stated a particularly compelling or even very cognizable national security interests with respect to WeChat. Um, and, and to be quite honest, I haven't seen it either. I mean, the, and, and so essentially the argument is, you know, the Chinese government is really going after da data. And this is a Chinese company that has access to a lot of data. And therefore, I have a compelling state interest to do pretty much anything I want. And, and that didn't seem to survive, you know, strict scrutiny under the first First Amendment, uh, even tailored to the national security context, where the court said it's we'll defer to the president's statement of a national security interest in the first, uh, obviously because the president has access to a lot more information than we do. But you'd think that if this was really as bad as they're saying, they'd be able to articulate that interest better than they have here with respect to WeChat in particular, and not just with respect to China writ large. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I think also just for any First Amendment nerds out there, this is technically an intermediate scrutiny case because it's content neutral. 
but um, it is the same principle. Tim described all the principles correctly. It's just, it's, is it narrowly tailored government interest? And then the other aspect is, did it leave open adequate channels for communication, right? And, and I think the court says potentially no on that as well, uh, because it, they had some declarants and other evidence that got put in that said that this is really the exclusive way that this, these 19 million users, uh, Chinese uh, users or Chinese American users are, are communicating with one another. And so it, it almost, you know, amounts to a form of censorship by just sort of taking this out of, uh, you know, putting this out of commission. So, I mean- Shutting it, down the town square is really- ex Exactly, that was, that was the metaphor that was used. So in any event, I think, it, you know, look, there's gonna be a lot more to be said on all that. The government's gonna fight this, you know, tooth and nail. Although I would, I would note, at least upon my last check, I don't believe that uh, there's been, as I said, the um, the TikTok uh, prohibitions were withdrawn over the weekend and then reissued with the new September 27th date. The WeChat um, prohibitions have not been, at least not upon my last check just before we started recording. And so I wonder whether or not this is enough to cons to make the administration or the Commerce Department think about tinkering with the with the rule or with the prohibitions in some way to try to satisfy this. Or if, as I would not be surprised, they just decide their way is correct and they're just gonna fight this tooth and nail and this this magistrate judge in, in San Francisco is totally off base and and we'll you know we'll steamroll that person and, and go all the way up and we'll get this we'll get this to stick kind of thing. But if that's the if that's the plan, that, that could take quite a while to play out, obviously. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if there's any change in tactics with the actual substance of the rule, the rules themselves, or if it's just a litigate, litigate, litigate until we're told by somebody, um, you know, that this is not going to pass muster. Um, made all the more difficult by the fact that for the time being, we have a eight person Supreme Court as well. So, uh, so, you know, that's, that'll be interesting to see. I think on the other side, with respect to TikTok, as I said, the, the primary or the at least lead argument that they're making is that the scope of authority here that the president has under IEPA was exceeded because the uh, personal communications and informational materials of which videos clearly are covered, films and videos are clearly covered, uh, is carved out from IEPA. And, and this is something that is just beyond the authority of the president to regulate and, and has been, you know, that has been the case since, essentially since the beginning, since IUPA first went on the books, but was made even more clear and expanded through the Berman amendments, as, as Tim said in the late 80s. I thought, interestingly, one thing I saw that I thought was interesting was deep buried in the middle of the brief, and it's a very long brief, but for anybody out there who's interested, I would encourage you to read it because it covers a lot of interesting ground was a whole section that talked about the way that OFAC deals with the Berman Amendments and informational materials. And that OFAC widely or clearly acknowledges that this is out of bounds. And so they either explicitly carve it out from any sanctions related um, authorities that they are administering or there are general licenses that are put in place to deal with it so that people can still uh, exchange these types of items. And I thought that was interesting. There was like a page or two section in the middle that they, the um, TikTok basically put in there as sort of, uh, you know, a prime example of how this is just very well established, even within the government, that this is, uh, that this type of action is just out of bounds because this, uh, sphere is is one where you, you just can't meddle. No, I, I mean, I, I, 
I definitely think that that you know, with respect to the TikTok, uh, with respect to the TikTok lawsuit, the Berman Amendment is going to to become to come front and center because um, the argument, the First Amendment argument, I think was much stronger in the WeChat case, whereas it, it, it which is why I think the judge didn't feel the need to reach the Berman Amendment arguments, although I. I view them as strong as well, but I think that that in in the TikTok lawsuit, if it ever gets off the ground, we'll see uh, the 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 Berman Amendment slash the president IEPA does not authorize the president to to regulate uh, personal communications um, of this sort uh, is a is a pretty strong argument and and appears to be what what's going on here. Now, in both of these cases, uh, I will say that the 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 president's regulatory authority seems um, strong, but is also undermined by statements that the president has made outside of the context of these administrative proceedings. And so I think there is going to be a big fight. And and there, you know, it, it, the, those some of those statements made it into the injuncting injunction order, and they certainly feature prominently in the briefs. There will be a big fight about how important the president's statements about the purpose of these orders is because some of those statements strongly strongly suggest that the order was infected by and perhaps motivated by anti-China animus. Yeah, and in the TikTok lawsuit, they even bring in the point that this is just a, again, sort of a ploy to curry favor with voters in advance of the election, essentially. Right. That's basically what, what, it, what it boils down to. So um, yeah, and as we said, there's, there's many other bases in the TikTok lawsuit as well, First Amendment, APA, uh, some other IEPA related um, claims, but I, I do think the the sort of uh, personal communications, informational materials, the Berman Amendment related claims are, are sort of critical to look at again, because they are so central to the way that uh, any kind of uh, certainly sanctions are imposed and administered just across the board. And, and as we said, I think the first time we talked about this, IEPA authorities are quite broad. This is one notable area that has been limited uh, and has never really controversial in how it's been limited. So it's, this is, seems to be now sort of bumping up against that pretty squarely. And, and so how that ends up playing out will be interesting to see. Now, the caveat to that is, as Tim alluded to, on the TikTok side, the, the lawsuit may end up being mooted relatively soon, quite frankly, because if there is a deal that is struck to restructure TikTok uh, that passes muster with CFIUS in the White House and the Chinese government, we'll get back to that in a minute, uh, then one would imagine that their lawsuit just goes away and that this is, uh, you know, a, it's sort of a proactive defensive measure, if you will, in the event that things fall apart in front of CFIUS. Um, the latest there, of course, which is also, um, again, inter completely intertwined uh, and making this all it is late last week, uh, it was it announced or it leaked out that there was a deal on the table to restructure uh, TikTok that would involve, uh, it would involve Oracle and Walmart taking on minority equity interests in a new entity that would be called TikTok Global. Oracle would be the uh, cloud service provider that would basically hold all the data. Uh, and, uh, and then there were some other details, but that's, that's essentially the, 
the the crux of it is that those two you know large U.S. companies would be at the center of this, uh, and then. Um, over the next several days, and, and, the, and the White House and the President sort of acknowledged that this was something they were, um, they were viewing positively and this would, this would get the thumbs up. Over the next several days, there were a number of things that came out that are now, have left everybody sort of wondering where this all really stands. One issue is, as we, as we talked about the first time this came up, was the you know, claims of the US Treasury is gonna have to get a, get a piece of the action here. And I think the president has now backtracked on that and, and essentially issued as close to a mea culpa as he will ever issue saying, well, it, I, I didn't realize that, that we couldn't do it that way. But what, what apparently is in the deal instead is this idea that there's gonna be $5 billion that will go to for some sort of education fund, um, whatever that is. And that's it appears to be very sort of ill-defined and not very well understood. Um, I, I, believe Byte, I believe the ByteDance folks basically said, well, that's news to us. Uh, we didn't even know that was in the deal. So um, that's a big question mark. The other sort of point of contention seems to be how much ownership interest ByteDance is going to retain here. Because again, the CFIUS, executive, CFIUS related executive order issued in August was talking really about a divestiture. It does not look like it's going to truly be a divestiture. It looks like it is sort of a maybe not a reshuffling of the deck chairs, but there is a, you know, there's these two new US investors that are coming in. There's some solution on the data from the US side with Oracle's involvement. And then there is, um, there is some, uh, it seems, uh, increased role perhaps for the US investors in ByteDance, the existing US investors in ByteDance to take uh, either board seats or control of the entity. And so, um, and, but there seems to be, again, some disagreement as to what exactly the parameters of that are and who's going to be really in control, what the, what the true kind of percentage ownership is going to be of ByteDance going forward if this all gets approved. Um, and, and so that's, that remains a big question mark. And then the last piece, of course, is that in the middle of all this, the Chinese government inserted themselves and said, you know what, we're imposing uh, new restrictions on exports of certain types of technology uh, out of China. And we are going to have the final say on whether or not we approve of this. And of course, all of the preliminary indications were that they were not going to approve this because they, they view it as an insult and they're furious that, that, that one of its you know, uh, crown jewels in ByteDance is being forced to uh, you know, kowtow to the whims of the US administration to uh, save TikTok. And so just the latest report I saw today was that ByteDance has now formally submitted the deal to the Chinese authorities to review and, and hopefully get, get approved. But whether that will be approved, uh, what exactly the details are they're reviewing and if they're the same as the ones that are being reviewed in Washington is a question mark. So again, I think on the whole, we, based on Tim and I discussing this in, in the past few days, we still think that there's gonna be some kind of a deal done here um, because there's just too much at stake not to get a deal done. But I don't know. I mean, there's still a lot up in the air. So I, I, I don't know that it's a certainty and I, and I do not know what it's going to look like at the end is, is definitely uh, the case at this point. Yeah, I, I still am just gobsmacked by the $5 billion cut. Um, I guess right. when your background is in real estate and you broker a deal um, or force a deal to happen, and the deal is worth X number of dollars, you just feel like you should get you, your- You get your percentage. You get yeah. your cut. But um, we'll see if that's how it works. Uh, it looks to me like that's kind of gone away. And now we're left with a deal that is actually 
um, much less aggressive than I think we would have predicted at the outset. If it, if if this deal is what what ultimately gets by the U.S. and the the Chinese governments, in the sense that the the you know ByteDance will still have a role, obviously, in TikTok and a pretty big role. I've always thought from a business perspective, that seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, TikTok is a very successful company. And the last thing you want to do is destroy its value by essentially locking out the the builders of that company. On the other hand, when there are national security issues, you deal with those. And so it does seem like this deal may well have addressed you know, whatever national security concerns were there, while at the same time trying not to kill the golden goose. Yeah, I think an interesting dynamic here, because of the involvement, quite frankly, of the Chinese government now in this, the reports are that the, you know, the algorithms and the source code are not going to be transferred to the U.S. And then that is, that is a non-starter for, the, for China. And so that's not surprising uh, that that is the case. And that is certainly, I don't think, where the U.S. government thought they would be when this all started, when they started down this road. I think they thought they could probably force that. And so in some ways, oddly, uh, this is now maybe the best deal the U.S. could get. And it's not, it's not sort of checking all the boxes that they might have thought they could get at the outset, but is is somewhere in the middle, which is an odd position for a, a sort of CFIUS um, you know, a CFIUS uh, reviewed or uh, investigated transaction and, a, and would, you know, a forced divestiture, essentially, that it's not really going to be a divestiture. And it's not really going to, um, I think, probably be the home run that they thought it was going to be at the outset, it's going to be kind of the best they could do. I mean, the US data being in the hands of a U- US company, that's a big deal, obviously. And I think that at the end of the day is probably what makes the difference here is if they're comfortable with that, a lot of this other stuff sort of, um, you know, is secondary. And, and so that may be what is decisive on the US side. Yeah, I mean, the shakedown worked, but maybe not as much as they thought it would, because when you have a shakedown that is justified by national security, if the parties come to a deal that protects the national security interests, while at the same time, not giving in entirely to the shakedown, that is probably um, the best you can do if, if, if what you're really trying to do is protect national security. Yeah. So stay tuned here. I'm sure, uh, again, whether we like it or not, when we have, when we come time for the next episode, this is, this is what we will probably be leading with. Uh, but I, before we sort of move on beyond China, I think the last piece, as I mentioned at the outset, is um, the unreliable entity list, which is now a real thing. Uh, I read the English language version of the MoFCOM uh, rule earlier today. Uh, and so um, for those who are unaware of this, again, this sort of came up originally around the time that Huawei was first added to the entity list in early in 2019. And it's been rumored to be something the Chinese government was putting together and, and being orchestrated at the highest levels to kind of counterbalance somewhat uh, and, and be able to presumably mostly target U.S. companies that um, to sort of rest- give them some leverage perhaps and restore some balance and so that the U.S. wasn't the only one sort of picking off Chinese companies with either the SDN list or the entity list. Um, and so the this rule not surprisingly, is very broad 
and gives a lot of leeway to the Chinese government to determine what companies, what foreign companies um, are, you know, essentially endangering national security or not abiding by traditional economic, uh, you know, uh, rules. There's a lot of language in there that, um, you know, as as we've talked about in the past with the, the Hong Kong national security law, with with great breadth gives great discretion and a lot of accountability. And so I think that there's clearly a fear that the same is going to be true here, that they can essentially on a, you know, decide for, you know, purely strategic and political reasons to just put whoever they want on the list. And that will potentially uh, restrict their, this company's ability to invest in China, to import or export from China and do a number of other things. So what do you make of the unverified list? What do we think the significance is this going to be? Uh, or I'm sorry, not the unverified list, the unreliable entity list. Uh, what do we think the significance is going to be? Do we think this is really going to be causing any heartburn among big US or other multinationals? How do we think this all comes down? Well, we've been predicting this type of thing for a while. I mean, you get into a sanctions type war arms with China, arms race, arms yeah. race. Um, with, a, with an economy the size of China's, they have the ability to impose sanctions too. And, and when you get away from kind of an international consensus for like a grounding for sanctions, so nuclear prol proliferation has been one, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, there, there are other issues around the, which the world will coalesce and, and view as good enough reason for sanctions. But when you start imposing the sorts of sanctions and the sorts of um, penalties that the US has done in connection with T TikTok and WeChat, uh, you've got to expect that an economy the size of China will say, well, fine, if you want to have just kind of an, a completely unbounded, you know, whatever transactions the Secretary of Commerce says are prohibited or prohibited type sanctions regime, we can do the same thing. And uh, I, I do think that that the, the Chinese economy is big enough and the U.S. Uh, trade with China is big enough that it does have the ability to inflict some pain on U.S. companies. Whether they decide to do that or not, we'll see. I, I will, uh, another thing that I was, wanted to point out about this, uh, the, the, the broad categories in, in, that, that the Commerce Department in China is allowed to uh, put people or put companies onto the unreliable entity list, one of those conditions is that the company is engaging in conduct that, quote, violates normal market transaction principles. It is kind of odd to have a communist country that essentially comes out and says, if you don't play according to the normal market rules, which I think are the normal capitalist market rules, um, we're going to put you on a list because you're not playing by the, the rules of the capitalist game. So so I did think that the, the Chinese government or the communist Chinese government uh, purporting to act to regulate world capitalism principles was a little bit odd. And then I guess the last thing that I would say about this is that, uh, you know, these lists uh, do have consequences. I mean, and the, the fact is, is that you have a lot of these uh, due diligence services and screening services that compile these lists and, and they compile them all. But to be on a, a Chinese government list uh, and, and to have to deal with the banks and to have to deal with other companies uh, finding that list and trying to figure out what it means to the extent the Chinese government starts putting U.S. companies on on this list and it is now a list that is you know has the backing of an, an actual Chinese piece of legislation I think it could create 
cre create real problems for U.S. companies outside of China as well, because you know we've we've talked about this before. The banks tend to really err on the side of not getting crosswise with anybody in terms of their screening, and so if they see somebody come up on a list, even if that list doesn't necessarily restrict the transaction, the banks could easily decide as a just a a, a de-risking matter not to do transactions with companies who get on this list, or at least to make their their banking life very hard. So. I think this could be a big deal. Yeah, I agree. And I think also one last point is, you know, the way the provisions are, are written too, in terms of the types of entities that could be added to the unreliable entity list, it, it certainly seems that those who perhaps assist or seem to assist the US in their efforts to crack down on Chinese companies could be themselves in the crosshairs here. So a couple of the entities that are sort of rumored already to be on the list, it's sort of for those types of, or, or in the sort of, uh, on the short list of potential first uh, additions here are those types of entities that are rumored to have assisted or provided information to the US in efforts to, uh, you know, enforce against Huawei or other entities. So that's another interesting question uh, that, you know, we, we haven't really had to think about too much with, or we have as a practical matter, but I think is going to become even more urgent is sort of what are the consequences of even just complying with US law obligations and how that could get you truly now crosswise with the Chinese um, government in terms of and subject you perhaps to greater risk with respect to the unreliable entity list. So that's going to be a difficult you know, calculus for companies to to balance as they as they move forward, as especially as you know, I think the rumors are and the reporting that I've seen on this is that not surprisingly, um, Beijing is going to wait to see what happens in the presidential election probably before they add anybody to this list, uh, depending on the outcome and depending on the tone of uh, whoever's going to be in the White House from 2021 on. Uh, that could very well dictate sort of how aggressively they populate this list or whether they never populate it at all. So um, so I think there's a little wait and see in all likelihood that's going to come with this, but this could be coming and could be coming soon. And I think, uh, you know, might have some real, real world consequences that everyone's going to have to deal with. So uh, with that, I think we are going to, that is a lot of China content. That is, front, I think, are we front. 50 minutes in? We're like 45 point? minutes in and it's all China. So, um, so for all of you China heads out there, we uh, we're glad that we're giving you what you want for everybody else. We're going to take a, we're going to turn, we're going to turn to some other topics now for the rest of the show. Uh, so with that, let's go uh, to, our old uh, number one favorite topic, Iran, and I'm going to turn to Tim to talk about what's uh, going on both at the UN and uh, in Washington with respect to new Iran sanctions. Thank you, Brian. Um, so let's make this a snappy snapback dis discussion about Iran. So the snapback is a mechanism that was in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the, the nuclear deal back in 2015, 2016 between the US, um, the, the EU, Russia, and, and Iran that uh, lifted that lifted secondary sanctions that the US had imposed on Iran, lifted U EU sanctions, and also list lifted UN sanctions. But one of the provisions in the JCPOA was that uh, any country who, the, the sanctions would snap back where any country who was a party to the JCPOA could, could 
go into the to the UN and say that there is a that there 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 is a violation of the JCPOA and if the JCPOA was being violated then the sanctions would go back into effect automatically and so the US uh, recently really over the summer in August went back to the to the UN to uh, enforce its rights under the JCPOA uh, to invoke snapback. And if you believe the, the news reports, and I don't have any reason to disbelieve them, after the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA in 2018, Iran has begun to uh, not honor its obligations under the JCPOA under the theory that if, you know, if the a party pulls out and we're not getting the benefits of this, then we're not bound by the treaty either. And so the U.S. went to the U.N. and the, U, the, the countries in the U.N. basically just laughed. I mean, this is just another instance of kind of, at least from a, a, a global perspective, rogue action by the U.S. where the U.S. withdrew from a treaty two years ago in a way that really, I, I you know, didn't violate any formal provisions of the treaty, but the treaty didn't have a withdrawal or the, the agreement did not have a, a withdrawal provision. And so um, the notion, I think, that, that, that it wasn't at least implicit in this, that none of the parties could unilaterally withdraw after they'd agreed to this treat, to this um, agreement was itself arguably a violation of the treaty, but certainly a withdrawal from the agreement. And so the I think the rest of the world community said, you, you don't have any snapback rights. You forfeited those when you withdrew. The U.S. Uh, did not, was not successful at the U.N., but instead, earlier this week, uh, President Trump signed an executive order that purported to reimpose unilaterally what were essentially the U.N. sanctions that had been lifted under the JCPOA. And the main one, the main sanction from the U.N.'s perspective was an arms embargo. So essentially, uh, the, the JCPOA left in place the, the prohibition or sanctions that involved some arms sales to Iran, but they were basically heavy arms and kind of the, the more um, mundane military items and the dealings with the Iranian military that were earlier prohibited by UN sanctions were lifted by the, by the JCPOA. And they're still lifted because the UN has not snapped back the sanctions at the US request, but the executive order imposes secondary sanctions on those same activities. And so from the US perspective, um, even transactions with no US nexus that involve dealing with the, the military of Iran or providing any sorts of arms sales or defense services to the, to the Iranian military, those are now subject to the secondary sanctions under the, the president's executive order. And so it's essentially unilaterally snapped back those same secondary or same lifted UN sanctions in the guise of US secondary sanctions. We will see uh, what, uh, how, how successful that is because Europe has already declared those, those new sanctions completely illegal and, and says that it's not going to honor them. But again, you know, when the US reimposed the, 20, the, the, the lifted secondary sanctions in 2018 from the US side, uh, the rest of the world said that was illegal and they weren't going to honor it and that that was something that the JCPOA didn't contemplate. And two years later, those secondary sanctions have been very effective, in my view, particularly at shutting down a lot of the Iranian oil trade. And so, you know, to the extent that these things, that this executive order stays in place beyond 2020 uh, and starts to be enforced, you know, the U.S. could have, may have figured out a way to reimpose, to, to snap back the UN sanctions without actually having the UN do anything. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 
Yeah, this is this is another sort of just really bizarre, sort of bizarre situation that the U.S. has got itself into now. And and I think as a so the way Tim described it is exactly right. We've basically chosen to unilaterally reimpose uh, this, you know, this essentially this arms embargo. And the arms embargo under the UN was actually is has been in place, and was set to expire. And so the U.S. went to try to invoke snapback to basically prevent the expiration. So the expiration of the rest of the world and everybody else who's a UN member country is going to be gone as of next month. But we now have this new executive order that's been issued in the US that essentially imposes the same limitations. And the, the talking points and the statements that are being made by Secretary Pompeo and others are, no, we have invoked snapback. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> you must abide by all of the prior UN, uh, you know, uh, sanctions that were in place that we have now said on our own, contrary to what everybody else believes, are back in effect. And also we have our own unilateral authorities that we've now put in place to to sort of honor and implement that. So let's put aside this sort of kind of bizarre reality of the U.S. claiming something has happened when the rest of the world says, no, it hasn't, because that is kind of where we are here. But as a practical matter, as Tim just described, with this new executive order that was issued and the ability of the U.S. to potentially go after anybody who does try to engage in any of these uh, prohibited, now prohibited arms, uh, you know, sales or dealings with Iran is, is potentially going to be subject to sanctions by, by the U.S. And what kind of an uproar we'll see, if anything, you know, it's all going to depend on obviously how aggressively the U.S. wants to uh, impose these. And to give you a, a, a small snippet and, and perhaps to give you the, an example of the low-hanging fruit end of the spectrum, the very first uh, uh, sanctions that were imposed under the new executive order this week targeted Iran's defense ministry and Nicolas Maduro for having flouted and ignored the arms embargo for the past two plus years. And now Maduro, who's who's sanctioned under many different uh, you know, executive orders at this point, is now also sanctioned under this new Iran uh, con conventional arms executive order that was passed this week, that was released this week, uh, in addition to these parties in Iran as well. So that's a, <laughs> he, is a he is obviously one of the favorite punching bags of the US sanctions apparatus. And so adding on this program is not probably not saying much and was an easy for again sort of low-hanging fruit now if if something and i think the next on the spectrum would be if we see some if we see china or russia to, to complete an arms sale that would that would potentially be covered by this that that i think is probably the next place we go the more interesting case will be what if a french or uk or german entity engages in some kind of arms deal that would potentially be subject to this, is the U.S. going to come after them and come after them hard? Because then that's that's where I think we're really going to see uh, right. this really get interesting and the tensions kind of just explode here, no pun intended when we're talking about arms, um, is if, if ally, allies of the U.S. are going to disregard this and the U.S. is going to say, you know what, we're calling you bluff, we're coming after you and we're going to we're going to come after you government agencies or you private entities in this friendly country and we're going to we're going to sanction you for what we deem to be um you know now covered again under our own unilateral or arguably the UN restrictions yeah i mean 
you know, adding another tag to Nicholas Maduro's SDN listing uh, is not uh, a very effective use of, if that's what this program is designed to do, right. then it's, it's going to be a paper tiger. But again, I agree that if, you know, the countries around the world that have entered into a deal with Iran to lift the, at least the, the lighter arms embargoes, the conventional arms embargo against Iran, if they start honoring that commitment and the U.S. imposes sanctions, it really could be, you know, we will see who wins. But I, I suspect that with, with respect to Europe, for sure, that the, the U.S. sanctions authorities will win that battle if they decide to fight it. Right. I mean, and it's also important to note, I think Tim alluded to this, the parties that were actually part of the JCPOA, it, it's, it was the U.S. until we withdrew, although apparently uh, not for purposes of invoking snackback. Um, it's France, U.K., Germany, right. China, Russia. China, Russia. So China and Russia, we are pretty confident, are not going to... <laughs> are going to review are going to regard the this executive order as not you know they'll use it to blow their nose with i don't think they're going to be respecting it very very uh much at all um the other countries who we're, we obviously have much closer ties with that's a different that's sort of a different question although this the public statements are certainly that they denounce this action and and, and you know view the us's actions certainly vis-a-vis -vis the un as being completely null and void so that's going to be where the rubber hits the road here, and we'll see if any of those countries get in the, get in the mix here, or if perhaps some other friendly country is going to try to you know engage in some arms sales with Iran. What how what the U.S. reaction is going to be? Well, the other the other interesting thing, I mean, this is, comes pretty late in the Trump administration, at least the the first term, and if there isn't a second term will this sort of executive order survive? I mean, I, I, I can make arguments both ways. I mean, on the one hand, um, I, you know, a President Biden would likely be committed to some version of restoration of the JCPOA. On the other hand, um, it's not clear to me how popular it would be to lift, to, to essentially lift an executive order that imposes an uh, an arms embargo on Iran. And right. so, so, you know, I, I could see President Biden lifting this. I could also see a President Biden deciding it's not worth a big political fight in order to allow, you know, in order to make it easier to sell arms to the Revolutionary Guard. So, so I, right. I think from a political standpoint, and even from kind of a, a, a transition standpoint, if there is a new administration, whether this thing goes away um, is not particularly clear to me at this point. Yeah. So uh, Biden's on the record as saying he, he would intend to return to the deal, to the nuclear deal, if he, if he is elected. Now, what that means and whether anybody else is going to want the U.S. to well, be part of the right. deal is a whole nother, is a whole nother question. The, Iran obviously has come out and said, look, we're not, we, they, they're basically have said, we've been burned by this already. We've been burned by the U.S. What incentive do we have to do anything to, we're not going to, you know, go back on, that we covered, you know, over a course of many years leading up to the original deal. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of complications. You know, it's not like on, you know, next February or March, if, if Biden's in office, that it, this is all, everyone's going to be sitting around a 
conference table with masks on in Geneva negotiating, you know, part two of the deal or 2.0 of the deal. Like that's just, I don't see that happening. So this is going to take a while to play out, even if the will might be there. I think Tim's point is exactly right. There are now things that have been put back in place that are going to be deeply politically unpopular to sort of just, you know, get rid of again. So I, it's going to be, it's going to be very tough sledding if, if there's a commitment to try to try to get back to some kind of a deal. Well, and the thing is, is that um, you could see this being, this executive order being lifted as part of a global deal. Right. But I think you're exactly right, Brian. The the JCPOA in its old form is never coming back. President Biden is not going to have the option to just say, you know, snap his fingers and go, the JCPOA is back on because from Iran's perspective, um, and and honestly, from the Europeans' perspective, and and probably Russia and China, um, that that option that ship has sailed, and the JCPOA, because of the way the U.S. unilaterally withdrew from it, it has it should, should proved to be too weak a deal from the Iranians' perspective. I mean, it was that Iran understandably thinks this was a terrible deal. We honored our end and you just walked away with no consequences. Right. And so at the very least, there'd be, there. I would think that there would need to be a new nuclear deal that was, that was uh, negotiated. Iran certainly would want more concessions, but even if they would settle for the same concessions at the very least, they would understandably, and I think correctly insist upon some sort of mechanism to ensure that once you, once you, committed to this, you couldn't get out of it simply because you wanted to, because that destroyed a lot of reliance interests. And I think will make everybody very reluctant to come to the table unless there's some sort of enforcement mechanism beyond the snapback, which is what everybody thought, if anybody's going to violate or walk away from this deal, it's going to be Iran. But instead, you know, when the US walked away, that was so unthinkable at the time of the deal that there was no mechanism in the agreement to deal with it. Right. Yeah, agreed. So, Again, this is our, you know, our our fortune telling. We have our fortune telling hats on here. I, I, I do think it's going to be incredibly difficult to sort of chart what's really next here. You know, uh, even if um, even if Biden were to were to win. So yeah, I agree. Um, so stay tuned, and and again, we'll, we will see what comes of the you know unilateral new sanctions from the U.S. Uh, we'll call them that rather than reimposition. Uh, and uh, yeah, it'll be, I think this will take a little while to play out, but over the next, you know, three to six months, I wouldn't be surprised if we see, again, something a little more than low hanging fruit being targeted um, under under the new executive order. Um, so with that, uh, that is our technically a two topic episode, even though again, that was about a dozen topics within the two topics. Um, that wraps up the main portion of uh, the pod for this Uh, week. And with that, let's pause for our favorite sound effect. And we're now into the lightning round. Um, Only two topics in the lightning round. Um, I will start with a few recent designations that have come under the um, election interference executive order and sort of the related, some related authorities, the cyber authorities and and some of the the Ukraine-Russia authorities as well. I think the most interesting of these is, and the reason we sort of wanted to talk about it is, it was actually the day we recorded the last pod, there was um, some designations that came out uh, that were focused really around a Ukrainian politician, uh, Alexei Durkach, who 
is there's a very sort of famous picture of him with Rudy Giuliani. And the stated reason that he was um, sanctioned is because he's a Russian agent and was attempting to sow disinformation relating to the US 2020 presidential election, which is of course, all really aimed at discrediting Joe Biden and his and his and Hunter Biden and their interests and dealings in Ukraine and and many of the things that were sort of at the heart of all of the um, the Russia investigation and the impeachment proceedings and and all the rest of it. So, I, I think the the thing that's interesting that we really wanted to talk about here and and, and like I said, there have been a few others that have come in the in the last couple of weeks as well um, that are not as directly sort of on point. They are Russian election interference, but they're dealing mostly with actions that are focused and targeted outside the U.S. So let's just stay on this for the moment. Um, the question or the comment I have is, you know, it's really quite interesting that we have this, this designation or this, you know, series of designations um, that are focused on uh, election interference, that are focused on the president's opponent. Um, you know, the Treasury, um, the Treasury uh, press release is quick to to pat itself on the back and say, you know, look, we 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 continue to stand up to Russian interference and uh, and do everything within our power to prevent them from meddling in our democratic election process. Um, but you know, by at the same time, there there are news reports these that are, have been louder recently that you know U.S. intelligence agencies generally don't share Russia election interference intelligence with the White House because it makes the president so angry to hear about it. He, he doesn't want to hear about it. Um, and so the idea that OFAC is at the same time going after somebody like Dirk Koch, who is so closely tied with the president's personal lawyer, I think is very interesting. It also just gets at general, sort of some general interesting notions about sort of executive power and, um, you know, sort of and policy uh, you know, prioritization when it comes to sanctions. You know, as we said the last time, there were only four programs that haven't had, or I'm sorry, only there are only a handful of programs that have not had any action under this administration. I think some of that is due to world events. Some of that is due to just policy preferences. And I think this is this is getting at that a little bit. And it's a bit of an odd it's a bit of an odd circumstance that we're seeing this now. And, and I guess, you know, a cynical view here is that this is maybe just enough to credibly claim that we're doing, that the U.S. government is doing something about Russian interference uh, and also perhaps give the administration the ability to say that they're being even handed because they're going after someone that was trying to discredit the president's opponent. But, um, but I don't know. Uh, you know, I think this is, um, I think it just raises a whole bunch of really interesting issues just about at the end of the day, sort of the, you know, the fundamentally kind of political uh, of this tool of the sanctions tool, uh, which, uh, you know, again, national security interests are, are and foreign policy interests at, at the heart of all this. But, but at the end of the day, these are decisions that are made by people who have to make judgment calls about who is and is not worthy of sanction. And so, um, you know, that's just, I don't know that I even have a question, but that's just a few thoughts, a few sort of stream of consciousness thoughts about it that I'll, I'll kick over to Tim. Yeah, I, I think it's evidence that the deep state is running this country. Um, and that's really all I'll say about it. Tim. No, I, I guess I'll say a little bit. A little please, bit please, please elaborate on that before, before so after us and, uh, and you know. Well, um, you know, I, it is odd that a president who has repeatedly disclaimed Russian interference in the U.S. elections uses his authority through his 
administrative actors to sanction various Russian actors for interfering in the U.S. election um, and, and interfering in the U.S. election in a way that would, would undermine his opponent. It, it doesn't strike me as something that if this decision were personally put to the president, the president would be likely to do. And so, so but this decision was made using his executive authority. Um, likely without his knowledge and, 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 and or consent. And so it does raise the sort of deep state issues that the, that the administration has complained about in the past. On the other hand, um, you want to think that when we have a program that's designed to uh, stop foreign interference in U.S. elections and the national security actors have clear evidence of that, then they can, they can use those authorities to, 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 to deal with that, even if it turns out that the foreign actors are attempting to interfere on the president's side as opposed to the president's opponent's side. So, so I, I, I do think it raises interesting questions about kind of who acts using the president's authority and how much knowledge and consent of those actions does the president need to have? Because obviously a president, you know, there's thousands of actions taken by the administrative agencies every single day that the president doesn't know about and doesn't consent to other than in, in the most like completely- For delegated, yeah, you know, the delegation of authority. Right, though, I mean, right? It's, but I mean, it's the president yeah. isn't doing yeah. anything and the president doesn't right. know about it. Right. And the, the fact is, is that that happens all the time, but this one is kind of striking in the sense that yeah. it does seem to be something that if the president were asked to review this, right. I find it unlikely that the president would agree. Yeah, and I, and I will just say, I'll just add as a final uh, footnote here, you know, from my time having worked within the interagency uh, process to, 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 put forward and to consider and to, you know, make the case for certain designations under certain authorities, it can be a highly politicized process where it more often than not, it is, it is the, the people at the highest levels who, who might be putting the brakes on something or saying, well, we need to do, you know, there's timing considerations here, or there's these considerations here, or whatever the case may be, and whether that's National Security Council or, uh, you know, elsewhere in the White House, that is not that uncommon. And it's not, that is not uncommon. That is that is true of this administration and every other administration I'm aware of. But um, yeah, to Tim's point, it's interesting that this is one that got through. Uh, and you know, I would I would have loved to be a fly on the wall if uh, the president and Secretary Mnuchin had a conversation about this at some point before or after this was released. Uh, what was what was said there? But um, I guess we'll never know. Uh, so no, yeah. when when Mnuchin's book comes out, we'll know. yeah, that's true. When when Mnuchin's book gets comes out and then he is promptly, uh, it comes out that he's being investigated for. Uh, unauthorized disclosure of classified information, like exactly. John Bolton, um, then uh, we will then we'll nail. But um, until then, that that's not going to happen. So, with that, let's uh, let's put an end to let's put an end to that one and let's go to let's our final topic. Let's move which is, in a lightning-like fashion to Cuba. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, Brian, that the that the. Uh, that OFAC, it, what was it yesterday, imposed a new or a, a new series of restrictions on dealing with the Cuban government and dealing uh, with Cuba restrictions that apply not only to U.S. persons but any person subject to your U.S. jurisdiction, which includes U.S. owned or controlled companies. And to to quickly tick through some of those changes and then talk quickly about um, what they mean. So. 
OFAC created a Cuba prohibited accommodations list, so a new list that we're going to have to deal with that really applies to um, lot, it, it pre prevents any person subject to U.S. jurisdiction from lodging, paying for lodging, making any reservation for on behalf of a third party to lodge at any property that the Secretary of State has identified as owned or controlled by the Cuban government. So basically, there's going to be a list of accommodations that you can't stay at if you're a U.S. person, but travel agencies can't make reservations there. And and this isn't just U.S. persons, it's persons, it, it's foreign, foreign companies that are owned by U.S. So it's pretty broad um, and, and really designed to crack down on the Cuba hotel uh, industry, the, the, the tourist trade, and affect it in a way that is broader than just U.S. tourists to, and U.S. travel to Cuba, since U.S. tourism is still technically illegal, although um, there have been rumored to have been trips where people do things that look like tourism, but I'm, sh I'm sure that they were engaging in the generally authorized activities under some of the general licenses. So there also was previously in kind of the loosening period under the Obama administration, there was an allowance uh, that, that US persons who went to Cuba lawfully could bring back uh, basically rum and, and, uh, and cigars um, and, and the amounts got bigger and bigger under the authorizations. Yesterday's action uh, took those authorizations away. So you can no longer uh, bring into the United States rum and cigars when you come back from Cuba. Uh, it, there was a there was a general license that allowed for professional meetings and conferences in Cuba, allowed you to go there without a license for a professional meeting and conference. That general license has now been revoked, so you can only go for a professional meeting and conference. If you get a specific license, you get specific permission from, from OFAC, and they say they'll review it on a case-by-case -case basis, which means they're still open to granting one, but you've got to get one before you go. And then there was a general license that allowed uh, to travel by U.S. persons to Cuba um, for public performances, clinics, workshops, competitions, and exhibitions. The, the decision yesterday from OFAC limited the scope of that general license. And so the only remaining general license is for participation in uh, athletic competitions in, in Cuba by amateur or semi-professional athletes or athletic teams. So it's pretty narrow now, was much more broad. So basically, I mean, the upshot of this is that the, the administration, which has been restricting travel to Cuba quite a bit over the last three or four years, has really kind of put the brakes on uh, more more interactions with Cuba. The other thing that's not on the press release is that they uh, did away with the with the U-turn exception, which allowed for U.S. dollar transactions that's, that started and ended outside of the United States. That is no longer around as well. And so with respect to the that that it will make it much more difficult for any U.S. person who goes to uh, Cuba to, for example, use their bank card, which which was was possible under the uh, when the term exception was was in place. Yeah. So just quickly, I don't have much to add other than to say that the the reasoning and the stated purpose behind all of these um, new restrictions or the rescinding of these general licenses is to essentially take money out of the pockets of the uh, Cuban government and to cut out, cut out revenue that is essentially directly traceable from U.S. persons to the Cuban regime uh, and the the Communist Party in Cuba. And that is sort of the stated goal here is to sort of cut off all of these those revenue streams. I would also say that the um, prohibited accommodations list, the CPA list, is long. 
There are yeah. a, it is Be it hotels is, it, is, it is 30 pages. It is, you can find this on the State Department website. They're the ones who are going to be the maintainers of the list. Um, and it is, it, there are hundreds of, na of, of names on here. And so um, that's just another sort of screening headache and logistical headache for anybody who has any connection to, um, you know, who is subject to U.S. jurisdiction, has any connection to traveling to Cuba under any circumstances. Now, this needs to be taken into account. All of the Cuba FAQs that deal with any of the, you know, 12 um, categories uh, that are still allowed for travel to Cuba have now been updated to reflect the creation of this list so that they're reminding everybody that you have to be consulting with that. So just another, um, just another dimension to sort of further complicate things with respect to any, any kind of travel to Cuba for persons subject to US jurisdiction. Now, the one thing that I'll kind of close with on this is we talked about how it, it may be difficult for, for President Biden, even if he wanted to, to opt back into the JCPOA and kind of put us back where we were in 2016. If there is a President Biden, I don't think it will be very hard at all for him to essentially undo all of these changes with respect to the to the Cuba sanctions. I think that the Cuba sanctions are very unpopular and could be undone kind of with the stroke of a pen and probably would be. We'd probably go right back to 2016 if Biden were elected in, in the Cuba realm as opposed to the Iran realm. Yeah, I think that's I, I, notably also, I think we've said this before with China, I don't know that we're going to go back to an Obama era China policy, even if Biden were to win. I think that is definitely the case that tough on China is here to stay. Tone will change and some of the particulars may change, but I think China is going to continue to be front and center and, and dealt with in, in many respects in the same way uh, in 2021, regardless of who's in the White House. I agree completely, though, that with Cuba, we could very well see a complete reversal and go back to something much closer to what we saw at the tail end of the Obama administration. It would be easy to do. And I, and I also think that if, if, you know, depending upon how the election comes out and, and what, what Congress looks like, it, some of the Cuba legislation could be undone. I mean, I, I do think we're at the point where um, because this has become a much more partisan issue at this stage, whereas it, you know, I think 20 years ago, it was a, a much more bipartisan support for the Cuba embargo, that um, that there there is the possibility that if, you know, if the Democrats win the election, that some of the some of the uh, Cuba legislation that really ties the president's hands on tourism could be revisited. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Uh, so with that, we will wrap up for today. That's the end of the lightning round. That's the end of the pod. Uh, we gave you a lot of China content. We did cover a few other a few other items. I'm proud of us that we managed to not have it be a 100% China episode. Uh, we did mention the election many, many times. I think that is probably uh, going to continue for the next few episodes. I think in all likelihood, we are likely going to make an effort to um, not have a pod be released on election day. We will probably wait. If we have to skip, a, skip an episode, we will probably wait and record one later in the week after the election happens in early November so that there will be run one released a week after election day. Uh, I just, uh, we, we know everybody will be busy uh, doing and thinking about every uh, about other things. If you're in the United States, please register for vote to vote. Please don't be afra afraid to vote by mail. Uh, and we would certainly encourage everybody uh, to, to do that here in the next in the next few weeks. Yep. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap up for today. Thanks again for joining us. If you again, if you enjoy the pod, please subscribe. Please give us a rating. Uh, you can find us anywhere. And uh, until next time, please, everybody stay safe. 
and stay sanctions free until next time. Stay sanctions free, everybody. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.